G'day, it's uh, Tom Radlick, and welcome to uh, Critical Line Item. Uh, one of the things about coming to a 20-year anniversary of a major terrorist attack is that people often ask questions about how did this happen, who did what, um, when, you know, what were the consequences of it, and, and the classic question in every single case is where the hell did they get the money from to pull that stunt off? And this is the case with, with uh, far-right groups in the United States and in Australia and elsewhere, as well as other terrorist organisations. The reason that question is important is the minute you cut resourcing to groups like this, you are cutting um, their ability to get access to things that enable them to do bad stuff. Joining me today is an intelligence and security expert all the way from all the way from Canada, Jessica Davis, who's done some fascinating work. She's written a book on women and terrorism, but more importantly, for this particular podcast, a book on terrorism financing, working out where you know bad actors get money to do bad things. Jessica, thank you for joining me for this discussion. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Now, but you, you, there are people who hear this and they'll. they'll not really know where to place you professionally. Uh, I've read your bio. It is it is impressive. Uh, you, but the audience hasn't. Mm -hmm. What would your career look like if it was written out on the back of an envelope for someone who needed to capture it quickly? Yeah. So briefly, I spent the last about. 18 to 20 years with the government of Canada in a variety of different roles. I started in the Canadian military and then worked in our global affairs department for a few years. The bulk of it, though, was really spent at FinTrack, our financial intelligence unit, and uh, CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, um, where I did work on illicit financing, all different types of it, including terrorist financing. I left government back in 2018 to try to do a little bit more outward facing work to educate Canadians and really the international community about illicit financing risks. And I'm also doing a PhD at Carleton University. Um, so I'm a PhD candidate looking at counterterrorism uh, measures, counterterrorist financing work in particular. Which brings us conveniently into the subtopic space that. Uh... I want to touch on with you because there's, there's always some mystery associated with people who play in the darkness for various reasons, um, whether it be illicit networks like you know, the organised crime, you know, the mafia, the triads, Yakuza, uh, or terrorist groups. If we... We can touch on some of the some of the other other kinds of organisations, but if we look at terrorist group financing and we pick on Al Qaeda in particular, given that we're coming to the twentieth anniversary of nine eleven, what do people need to understand about that particular um, terrorist grouping, terrorist organisation, when it comes to understanding the way they paid for? things to be done. So Al-Qaeda is a really interesting example because it was one of the most well-funded terrorist organizations that didn't hold territory per se. So now when we think about terrorist organizations, we're thinking about 
the Taliban or the Islamic State, who's held territory in Iraq and Syria and now in Afghanistan. And these are organizations that generate a lot of their money from um, extortion rackets, protection rackets, really exploiting the economic activity in the territory that they control. Al-Qaeda was a bit different. So they did have some businesses, they had some wealthy donors, they had a little state sponsorship, mostly in, in the term, in the sense of um, freedom of movement in Sudan and in, and in Afghanistan. Um, so they can't, they came at it with a fairly diverse funding portfolio. Uh, and then for the 9-11 attacks themselves, there were some wealthy donors who were implicated in, in funding that attack specifically. There are other aspects though of Al-Qaeda's finances that I think are also really interesting and in sort of how they manage money. Um, again, through a little bit more of a centralized management structure. So it wasn't just one person, but there was a number of individuals who were responsible for different aspects of uh, collecting and using money. So it was a fairly sophisticated organization compared to what some of the things that we see today, but with a bit of a different funding source than we're used to seeing right now. Al-Qaeda's example fascinated me for, for various reasons. For, for, for the people listening to this, I've taught audit and assurance. And the fact that Al-Qaeda, as an organization that, that, that committed to blowing stuff up, right, had an internal audit function to make sure that the money they got in to help them blow stuff up wasn't being frittered away by people on strange things. Had to, I think that some of that evidence came from Xinjiang papers from memory. Uh, when, when you confront that kind of thing in your research, what does that tell you? I love this because I think people often think that terrorist organizations are ideologically immune from internal corruption and trying to get wealthy individually. But that's not what my research shows. And it's not what I've seen for the last you know, 15, 20 years of doing work in this field, is that almost every terrorist organization that I've studied suffers from internal corruption. So one or more members siphoning funds for their own personal wealth. Um, you know, even when we look at the Taliban, some of their leadership has been paid millions of dollars. So these are not people who are just committed ideologically to the cause. These are people who are getting wealthy off of terrorism. And, and protecting, protecting sources of funds and managing sources of funds um, in the way that Al-Qaeda did. Uh, well, actually, it fascinated me for, for various reasons, one of which is it's not something that I expected people to do uh, in a terrorist group, but before I started thinking seriously about it. And... The other thing is the level of interrogation that appeared to be apparent based on the evidence that, that, that came about. Uh, in the jihadist milieu, the, the sort of jihadist groups that, 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 that people are aware of, Al-Qaeda Al is unique, but are there any other organisations that you know of where there are sort of wealthy backers or, or a circle of backers that that, that, pour, that have poured money into them. Yeah, there's a lot of terrorist organizations today who get or have gotten at different points in time some of their money from wealthy donors. So my research shows that about 27% of terrorist organizations 
at least have gotten money from wealthy donors. So this is cases where we have evidence of those kinds of transactions. Um, so it's fairly common. It is much more common at the organizational level rather than the operational level. So what I mean by that is that wealthy donors are much more likely to give money to a terrorist group or organization with that sort of formal structure rather than um, a group of a cell or an individual who are planning a terrorist attack. Um, so that's actually really rare. We only see that about 4% of the time when they're, they're funding something very specific. So it's quite common to see the wealthy donors, but the management of funds in every group is a really unique dynamic. And it happens at the operational level too. So even for a fairly low complexity attack, you'll see one or maybe a couple of individuals managing the funds for the group, sort of the ones who are responsible for collecting the money and then figuring out how to make the purchases. And in a lot of cases, trying to implement financial tradecraft strategies. So how are they going to hide their activities from law enforcement and security services? There's a great case um, from the Toronto 18, it was a terrorist plot here in Canada, where the it was a disrupted plot, thankfully, they wanted to blow up uh, a building that actually has the Canadian Security Intelligence Service in downtown Toronto. Um, but one of the things that they did as part of their financial tradecraft is print out business cards that said that they were student farmers to provide a cover story for all of the fertilizer that they were purchasing. So it's all of these little things that go into the operational management that have a financial component that are so interesting. The, to what extent does your, do the, focus on Canada briefly, um, to what extent do the, the your Canadian authorities that, that look at money laundering and terrorist financing, financing see um, money flows that are directly linked to, to the terrorist activity? That's a tricky one. I would say that it's actually quite rare. Um, there are cases where we see terrorist activity and the financing of it at a very granular level in Canada and many countries. I, I work internationally now. Okay. A lot of that is for self-financed activity. So those low-level plots, the fairly low-complexity attacks. Organizational financing, I think, is a bit of a diff different story. I would say that there's only fairly direct evidence of a couple of groups and their operations in Canada, specifically Hezbollah. Um, because most groups either use enough financial tradecraft, so maybe shell corporations or uh, not in the name of nominees or third parties that are sort of one okay. step removed from the terrorist activity to make tying that directly quite difficult. So and this is reflected in the, num in the very few number of uh, terrorism prosecutions we have here too. Well, the, that, that's an inter interesting. So we're here, we're talking about the ability of people to, to launder funds from one one place to another in order to to, to camouflage the source. Yeah, exactly. So most terrorist organizations kind of figure out when they've been sanctioned or when the authorities are going to be looking at them. So they'll use some form of tradecraft to hide that activity. We see it a lot less in the operational realm, most of the time because if you've got a cell or even an individual who's planning an attack, they're often pre-positioned in the country where they're going to do that attack. So they don't need to move the money internationally. They're going to self-finance through petty crime, financial frauds, even getting a job, 
credit cards, student loans, that kind of thing. So we don't see it as much on the operational financing side, but organizationally, especially when terrorist organizations are making investments, because anytime a terrorist group runs a surplus, they need to figure out what they're going to do with that money. A lot of them want to plan for the future. They have, you know, these long and involved projects of maybe state building or um, just continuing their reign of terror, depending on what they want to do. And so they tend to need to make investments, sort of buy up businesses, even invest in uh, securities, although that evidence of that is much more rare. The, what, some of the interesting things that we've been speaking about globally over the past year or so have been the greater prominence not so much the greater emergence, but the greater prominence of anti-government <clears throat> groups, that is anti-government militia, and sort of far-right groups, whether they be the groups like uh, uh, the crew that's been written about recently here in Australia called the National Socialist Network, or up north where, where you are, groups like the Base and Adam Moffin Division. What does your research tell you about where those groups get their funding from? So far, the vast majority of the money that these groups and affiliated individuals are gathering is coming from donations, sort of from their own membership, from identity-based support networks. Um, so they're soliciting funds from like-minded individuals. Um, in some cases, there may be evidence of the odd wealthy donor here or there who's making like a one-time influx of funds, but that's limited. We don't so much see state sponsorship yet, but I'm not convinced that that's not happening. Like it's just sort of where we see the evidence. And the piece of it is too, of course, it's like, we don't know our unknown unknowns um, because this is a somewhat emerging phenomenon in terms of public awareness. I think that there's a bit of a lag in terms of the information that we have about how these groups are financing themselves. And of course the crypto piece is really interesting. So a lot of these individuals and the individuals who are involved in what in Canada, we call it ideologically motivated violent extremism, because it's like quite a bit broader than just like the extreme, right? It's, it, it includes QAnon and, and incels um, when, they, when they become violent. So yeah, we, like we've to got the, we use the same terminology here, although uh, so-called progressive politicians and others uh, cried out when it happened because... The far right is um, how they're comfortable describing to the white supremacist types. Yeah. And, 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 but you can still use the term far right. It just means that ideology, it means that the category is ideologically motivated, violent extremism. It doesn't take the, somebody's right away from using the term far right. Yeah, exactly. So like when I use it, I'm talking about this broader bucket of things and that are maybe not always easily characterized as the extreme right, but they sort of fall in kind of in that same ecosystem. Anyways, their interest in cryptocurrency is really strong and much stronger than we've seen with other terrorist organizations or movements. And part of this is because there is a bit of an overlap in terms of I call them the Bitcoin bros who are like true believers <laughs> in the like the re the revolution of the financial system, you know, people who really firmly believe that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies will completely revolutionize how we, um, you know, 
spend and raise money and, and, and move it and all that kind of stuff. And there is an overlap there. It's not, a, it's not a perfect circle, of course. There's a lot of Bitcoin bros who are not extreme right. So before they send me hate mail, I, I understand the nuance here, but there is a bit of an ideological overlap because the, you know, if you're an anti-government extremist, there's a certain appeal to decentralized currencies. There's an appeal to avoiding the use of state-backed currencies. Yes. So, the, so we do see the adoption a little bit more on the extreme right and in that broader ideologically motivated violent extremist umbrella. The interesting thing with all of this as well is that um, you have the the general anti-government philosophy that tends to flow through any group that basically says the system is against us. So anything belonging to the system is something that is, um, shall we say, unfortunate, uh, somewhat um, wrong, corrupted, whatever. Um, and I want to push everything out into the ether and hide things. Uh, we've, we've got our own brand of sovereign citizens down here. Um, COVID sort of caused a lot of them to crawl from under a rock. <laughs> uh, and uh, as usual, they say that medical, that the health orders are not to be obeyed because they're issued by a corporation, but that's another story. To, to, coming back to the far right, um, and to militias and whatever have you, um, would it be a fair observation uh, to say that there would be a fair bit of self-financing for for people who are participating in those movements? Yeah, that is one of the things that we see the most right now is the, the self-financing. The overlap between some of the militia movements and some of the extreme right groups and some of the individuals associated with them when they, when they conduct attacks, there's a lot of overlap with how they're doing it with how our jihadists from the 2010s did it. Um, you know, a lot of them are avoiding the formal financial sector. They're making small purchases. Um, we'll see loan actor and small complexity attacks. And that self-financing piece is a really big part of it. Um, I would say though that in the extreme right, there is a bit more of a tendency to solicit donations from that like-minded community. They have a freedom of action that our, our jihadists of yore didn't have in terms of being able to raise money on social media, on crowdfunding platforms, um, because a lot of them aren't outlawed, particularly in the United States, but in a lot of other countries as well. Um, you know, we've only started to take action against some of these groups. You know, Canada has only recently listed Adam Waffen, Proud Boys, uh, Combat 18, all of these kinds of things. Um, and until then, they had a lot of, before they were listed, they had a lot of freedom of movement, including yeah. in the financial space. Um, I think Canada's also been listed an individual as a um, terrorist threat. Um, yeah, it's actually our second time listing an individual. Um, the first one was, was Gulbuddin Tekmadiar. So um, James Mason is now the second one that's listed. Which is interesting, given that um, some of his literature is uh, somewhat freely available in in dark, dingy corners of um, you know, the internet, and not so dark, dingy corners of the internet either. <laughs> oh, on somewhat mainstream platforms too. Well, I yeah, I've been diving into diving into places that sort of. Um, 
where some of these guys hang out, and it is not pretty. <laughs> it is not pretty. Um, Jessica, what are the things that um, uh, are happening that you're aware of in terms of research um, that are impacting on charities? Because there's a uh, there's a at times there are groups that use charities as fronts to raise funds. Is that still happening at the current time um, and to what extent? Yeah, so it's definitely a thing that's still happening. I'm, I still actually do quite a bit of work on, in this space. When we talk about charities, though, it's really important to unpack what exactly we're talking about here because, you know, we have sort of this we have global norms and regulations that are trying to prevent the charitable abuse or the abuse of the charitable sector by terrorists, but we're often not precise about how that abuse is happening. So in, in my book, I actually walk through a typology that I've developed to sort of identify and articulate that because if we don't articulate it, it's hard to develop really good responses to it. So for example, you know, some terrorist organizations will create their entire, an entire organization that serves basically as a front for the terrorist group. This is really rare. It's very, very rare that a, a terrorist organization does this much trouble. More often, they'll have one individual in a position of control or influence within the charitable organization that can divert funds or you know, skim some money off the top or divert money to a particular program that in turn is vulnerable. There are other kinds of charitable abuse, though, that are also really difficult to combat. So one of them is when charities or nonprofit organizations are delivering aid in a conflict zone. A lot of the time, if there's a terrorist group operating there, they're going to tax that activity. So Al-Shabaab is a key example of this. Anybody who is delivering aid in Somalia is paying protection money to Al-Shabaab if they're in that sort of area of operation. But if you say to people that you cannot deliver aid there, there's going to be a humanitarian crisis. So the international community is to a certain extent accepting a certain level of terrorist financing through charities because of this. And then there's another way too, and I'm not going to go through all of the different typologies, but the last example I want to use is when terrorist organizations or even individuals themselves use a charitable cause as a way to raise money. So we saw this a lot with individuals who wanted to travel overseas to join the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. They would say that they were raising money for the orphans. They were actually financing their own travel and then giving the residuals to the terrorist group. We also see it, even, even little examples like people standing on the street corner and saying that they're raising money for a particular cause, you know, the collecting cash. We see it less in the pandemic times, but um, we've, there are some examples of those individuals then going on and trying to conduct terrorist attacks, using that money to buy the material and goods that they need. So there's a lot of different ways that terrorists exploit the sector, and it's important that we be super precise about what's happening and where so that we get better policy responses and not just like this broad brush. It's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting point you make. And if we can flip it for a, flip it on its head for a moment, there's, um, it's also a question of awareness for people that are donating to, to, uh, to causes that might not be mainstream. That might that they might not might that they might not know about to be conscious of the fact that 
it may not necessarily be going where the money may not necessarily be going where the person tells you it is. Yeah, and we see this a lot, like especially right in the aftermath of disasters or crises. Yeah. A lot of these causes will spring up and you know, it's a friend of a friend. So maybe people aren't doing the due diligence they need to be doing to make sure that the money's going where it says it's going. The other thing that I often say, and, and I do work with a lot of nonprofits and charitable organizations, the number one way to protect yourself from, against terrorist organizations and, and terrorist abuse of your organization is to have good internal controls and financial practices. You know, that's the number yeah. one thing. It's like, if you're protecting yourself from fraud yeah. and corruption, you're probably doing a pretty good job at preventing terrorist abuse of your organization. And that's probably a, a good, uh, good solid point to add this uh, in this conversation. Uh, Jessica, where you published a couple of uh, books in recent years. Where can people look? Where can people read your material? Yeah, so I do a lot of public-facing writing. So certainly you can read my books. Um, my first one's called Women in Modern Terrorism. It was published by Roman and Littlefield. The second one is Illicit Money, Finance and Terrorism in the 21st Century. That's actually coming out in September on the 30th, and that's from Lynn Reiner Press. Um, but I think both of them are available on Amazon and through the publishers themselves. I also do a fair bit of writing uh, for Lawfare and for the Canadian uh, newspaper, The Globe and Mail. And I also run a Substack newsletter. Um, some of it's public facing, some of it's subscription based. So you can find me at Inside Intelligence there. And I'm also happy to connect with people on LinkedIn and Twitter. I tweet at Jess Marin Davis and LinkedIn. If you search Jessica Davis or Insight and Threat Intelligence, you'll find me. Jessica, that's been a fascinating discussion. Uh, in, and we've only scratched the surface of it. So I'd love to talk again on a specific issue uh, in more depth. But thank you so much for, for carving out some of your day to talk to me. Thanks so much, Tom. It was a great conversation and call me anytime. Thank you.